Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm so delighted today to have the chairman of Gold Money, James Turk, here today. He's the founder of Gold Money. He's considered the Yoda of metals. He has probably one of the most intricate, important understandings of the role of money today and really understands money as it's been used throughout human history. When most of us are confused, James Turk is clear, and he is the author of The Money Bubble, a brand new book called The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, that he wrote with John Rubino. He had previously written, along with John Rubino, The Coming Crash of the Dollar. We're here today to distinguish some things that even need more distinguishing after the first two interviews we did with him via audio. He is in London. He's in a big change in his life. And we're here to talk about what we can do that's not so obvious to most of us, including money managers, traders, accountants, investors, people that are concerned about holding their purchasing power. He talks about how trust can erode the purchasing power of the dollar. He talks about something important called a crack-up boom that's in his new book he's going to explain to us. He's also talked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and we've done some work about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies with some visionaries. We had Reggie Middleton on. We had Andrea Stephanopoulos on, Antonopoulos on, and James is going to talk about the role of cryptocurrencies and also inflation and hyperinflation, which most of us get confused and most of us don't believe that we're going to experience hyperinflation. History, in fact, does repeat itself. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the Yoda of Metals, the founder of Gold Money, James Turk. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you, Kim. It's really great to be with you today. Let's talk a little bit about the money bubble. You seemed way more bold in this book, way more willing to call a spade a spade, meaning you've always been honest, but you seem to have, like you're pulling out all the stops, both you and John Rubino, and you're really naming names of what things are and what we need to pay attention to. Did something change in you as a steward in the financial industry from the coming collapse of the dollar to the money bubble. What happened to you that you're able to distill things and call names of who is doing what and what it really is? Well, I think it's really been just the passage of time. Uh, you know, the, the coming collapse of the dollar came out in 2004. And in that book, John and I had uh, two basic themes. Uh, one is to buy gold because it was good uh, value and, and, in fact, undervalued. And secondly, to uh, bet against the housing bubble, uh, shorting stocks, shorting things like Fannie Mae, and et cetera. And um, uh, we expected an event like 2008. Um, and, but the outcome that occurred in 2008 isn't quite what we thought. Uh, we thought that the financial system would implode because of all of the speculative um, positions that had been taken, because of all of the debt that had been accumulated. Uh, the debt really couldn't be serviced. But in fact, what happened is that uh, at the last minute, uh, the system was kept together by this unprecedented amount of money printing uh, that the Fed, uh, the Fed has done over the past few years. So, you know, looking over the past couple of years since 2008, uh, back in 2013, when the gold price started falling earlier in the year, I basically stepped back and reevaluated all of the core ideas in the book, uh, all of my core premises as to you know why I think we're in a long-term bull market that's going to continue. And uh, John and I started speaking about it. And we thought, well, okay, this is a good opportunity to do another book, uh, bring the people up to date as to where the situation is financially, what the monetary system looks like, and you know why 2008 didn't quite bring about the collapse of fiat currency as we expected when we wrote the coming collapse of the dollar uh, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so what we've done is we've, we've written this book called The Money Bubble. It's got a lot more information that didn't appear in the first book, and obviously everything is up to date. We did it mainly in the last four months of last year. Uh, the hard copy came out in January of this year, so it was really quite uh, a quick process to get the book from uh, our heads into, into, into paper. 
You talk about the distinction as a core distinction between financial assets and tangible assets. And most of us think, well, that's obvious. We know what that is. But we don't really operate like we know what it is. And if we did, most of us wouldn't be so invested in financial assets. And my question to you is, aren't banks really carriers and investors in mostly financial assets on the back end? So when we think we're visiting on the retail end, in fact, we're not at the same bank, are we? Yeah, you know, banks really aren't what banks used to be. Banks have basically become, you know, hedge funds. And I'm referring here to the to the large money center banks, not necessarily the uh, community bank that uh, you have down the street, which still is providing banking in a traditional uh, traditional way. But uh, the big banks have become hedge funds. And the point you're making about financial assets and tangible assets is important because you know, wealth comes in these two different forms. Uh, tangible assets are, of course, things like houses, farmland, timberland, mines, oil wells, uh, factories. Um, and then financial assets are promises of one sort or another. And all of these promises have counterparty risk. It's the risk that the promise from the person who's making that promise cannot be fulfilled uh, or it, um, they don't have the financial capacity to fulfill it. And you have to distinguish between financial uh, real wealth uh, and financial assets because during the, um, we have operating in our economy what's called the boom-bust cycle. Uh, you know, in the 1920s, you had the boom. 1930s, you had the bust. 50s and 60s, you had the boom. 70s, you had the bust. 80s and 90s, you had the boom. And since the collapse of the dot-com bubble back in 2000, we've basically been in the bust. And this bust still has a way to way to go. But um, when you're in a bust, in order to manage your portfolio properly, you should be focusing on real wealth, you know, tangible assets of all sorts, and avoiding financial assets, because a lot of promises are broken, as we saw in 2008, and as we're likely to see again in the not-too-distant future, probably within a year or two, I would think, at the latest, a repeat of, 19, of 2008. So, you know, to protect yourself during the bust, you want to you want to be focused on real assets. During the boom, yes, it's okay to accept other people's promises, because um, during uh, the boom times as money is being printed by uh, the central bank and the commercial banks. You know, you have these illusions of prosperity that all is well and uh, the, the boom is never going to end. But, you know, this is a function of fractional reserve banking of the, of the banking system where they continue to lend and lend and lend until the banks become over leveraged, borrowers become over leveraged, and you have the bust. That's what happened in 2000. And we're right at that situation again that, uh, you know, there's too much debt in the system. Uh, it's only being serviced because interest rates are at or near zero. Uh, but what that's doing is it's breaking the back of our capitalist system because savings and the accumulation of capital through savings is an important component of it. And that's not occurring because of the zero interest rate policy of the Federal Reserve. Why is Warren Buffett downplaying the importance and the role of gold? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I've written about it. Uh, you know, obviously... Um, he knows what his father had said, that there's a, a role to play, uh, an important role that gold plays in the society. In fact, uh, there was a speech by Howard Buffett, who was a representative from Omaha for four terms in Congress. He gave the speech back in 1947, um, and he noted in that speech how uh, gold had been confiscated by uh, Mussolini in Italy, Lenin in Russia, and Hitler in Germany didn't say that it had been confiscated by Roosevelt as well in the United States. I, obviously, you know, he was being polite. But in that speech, he made the point that, you know, gold and a free society and sound money are very much dependent upon one another. Because if you have money that can be created out of thin air, as which is what governments do, they will use that money in, which, in ways that uh, is not necessarily what the, what the people want. And a good example of that is in 2008, during the financial collapse, uh, and the proposal for the bailouts were made. Eighty percent of the American population knew that was a wrong solution. But because they could not control the monetary system and they couldn't control their representatives uh, through the voting system, um, as Howard Buffett explained in his, in his speech, uh, the, the bailouts were, were made against the will of the American people. So you, in order to have a proper relationship, and this is, again, Howard Buffett, in order to have a proper relationship between the people and the government, you have to have sound money where people control the money, and we don't have that anymore. Now, why Warren Buffett has gone, in a way, 
or he's ignored the teachings of his father, I really don't know. But he wields uh, but, a lot of he wields a lot of power. People listen to him. And what's interesting, sorry to cut you off, but it just seems strange to me that people look to him for for financial guidance and wisdom and, and, and you know, somebody quote in the know. Why would he underplay the critical nature of sound money? I, I don't get it. I don't get yeah. it. It's bizarre. Yeah, I don't get it either. But, you know, even more critical by telling everybody to invest in stocks for the long term. He's ignoring an important point that his father focused on, that in our society, there's a, there's a difference between investing and saving. You know, investing is taking your hard-earned capital and putting it at risk in some kind of an investment, be they shares in a company or, or whatever. But savings is the accumulation of capital itself. And in a capitalist society, this accumulation of savings is an important component. Uh, you know, it's the middle class that provides the balance of the savings or the bulk of the savings and the bulk of the labor in order to make the capitalist society work. Uh, and it works in a way that everybody's standard of living is raised. And, you know, we've moved away from that. And, it, you know, that's why you get these complaints about the 1% on Wall Street. You know, they're benefiting from everything. But uh, Main Street is not benefiting. And I think this is true because if you look at the economy, the economy is still doing terribly. Wall Street's been bailed out. Uh, but there's less people. There are less people working in the states uh, today than there were back in 2007. So until you get a growth in employment, uh, you're going to have a poor economy. Because after all, the economy is people working, um, saving money, and uh, and spending. You know what they don't save, and that's today. That's that formula of a, a basic capitalist society is being disrupted by the extensive government intervention we're seeing at all levels, at the federal government and through the Federal Reserve. When you think about the fact that we've been in a debt-based system for, what, over 50 years, and we're in a liability-based system that we are relating to as money, it, to me, is part of the reason that most of us don't look at gold or the accumulation of gold as something that's so important that it is its own savings account. In other words, it's a capital accumulator. It's something that allows us to retain our purchasing power. But purchasing power, for some reason, is not translated in, in the schools and economics. Otherwise, don't you think that our financial analysts, our financial teachers, our mentors, our advisors would be advising clients that not only is the number of, that is accumulated important, but the purchasing power that flows with the numbers. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah I agree 100%. It, you know, in order to accumulate wealth, you have to, actually, to measure that accumulation of wealth. It's the purchasing power of money or these units of wealth uh, that, that you need to do, that you need to use in order to determine you know, whether the, you're becoming more wealthy. Uh, and the problem with currency today uh, is the purchasing power is constantly changing. It's trying to you know, measure, as the saying goes, a, a, um, a, a piece of cloth with a ruler that's constantly getting shorter and shorter. It just doesn't work. When people look at gold, at buying and accumulating gold, because of the confiscation in the United States, a lot of people are reluctant to have it. Other people say, don't put gold in a storage facility. Don't put it offshore out of the United States. You may never be able to get a hold of it. And a lot of people have very passionate feelings about both. One is, it's not near me. The metals aren't near me. Therefore, I don't have control of them. But what a lot of people forget is the confiscation of the United States, where the gold was taken. And so one part is a psychological thing, which is, it's not near me. My bank's near me. You know, the money's near me, but it's not our money. There's capital controls happening on the banks. And the reality is we're not really working with anything but a debt-based, liability-based system that's out of control. So what do we have? What does it mean when my bank, Chase, tells me I can't move my money out of the bank past a certain point? Is it my money? Whose money is it? And in fact, what I'm referring to is it's not even money. So what is it? Yeah. Yeah. You, you've actually raised a number of good points and a couple of actually questions are in there need to, I think, be uh, answered. You know, first of all, you're talking about gold and it, it does invoke an emotional response in people. You know, why this is so, I'm not really sure. But, you know, obviously it's something to do with human nature uh, and also, you know, what people 
read through the mainstream media as to you know what gold is. But you know, for up from the creation of the Constitution and the Coinage Act of 1792 up through 1971, gold and silver were the backbone of our monetary system, uh, of the American monetary system, and it worked you know very well. There were problems with the fractional reserve nature of the banks that caused the booms and busts. But the booms and busts back then weren't as bad as what we've experienced uh, since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 and then the elimination of any link to gold and the discipline that gold imposes on governments uh, when that link was broken in 1971. Um, so we're in a system that, you know, where gold has been money throughout the world for 5,000 years. In 40 years, we've been in this experiment where money is being printed out of thin air. Um, as you call it, a liability, uh, a liability type money, because it's all based on someone's promise. It's based on the promise of the Federal Reserve. It's based on the promise of the government to try to, uh, they, you know, they say maintain the purchasing power of the dollar, but uh, it only takes a penny of a 1913 dollar to purchase what a 2014 dollar purchases today. Uh, the, the dollar has lost so much purchasing power over the last hundred years since the Federal Reserve was created. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's really a tough question, uh, uh, Kim, but basically what we have to do when it comes to portfolio management and preparing for an uncertain and unpredictable future is to do what we need to do to sleep well at night. And generally, uh, you know, history shows that you have to have a portion of your portfolio in gold and silver uh, because they do preserve purchasing power over long periods of time. You know, I like to use the example that uh, if I remember as uh, a young boy in the 1950s growing up in Ohio, my parents could drive into the local gas station, fill up the family car with two silver dollars. Uh, today, the silver content of two silver dollars can still fill up the family car, but two dollars doesn't even come close to, you know, to, to doing that. So you look at the precious metals as a way of preserving purchasing power over long periods of time. They basically are money. They've been money for thousands of years. They're going to remain money, I suspect, for the foreseeable future. I like your analogy where you say when people have a perception about metals, uh, you know, well, it's metals are manipulated too, and metals are an investment, and gold is down now, or silver's down now. What should I do? It's still manipulated. I don't want to be involved. And I like your response, which, which, is, which has been consistent as I've listened to interviews with you, which is it depends. Are you looking from the boat that's going up and down with the waves, or are you looking from the land? And that gestalt is very instructive. Yeah, but but is it, is it the real answer? Is it well, the real it, answer? Yeah, it, it is. The, the land, of course, is the gold, and the boat is the fiat currency. And, you know, you think that you're trying to calculate things properly when you're in the boat, but in reality, you're not. You have to make that adjustment. And it's not necessarily easy to do because we're taught, you know, the, the wrong way. And um, you're going against conventional wisdom and conventional thinking when you, when you go the right way. But all you have to do is look at logic and, and history to conclude that, you know, this system today uh, is gone on the wrong track. But, you know, intuitively, I think that people understand that because it, the, the surveys and the polls tend to show that there's a sense of unease in America today that, you know, most Americans are basically saying that uh, the country is headed in the wrong direction. And I think there's a great level of frustration um, about that. And so you see, you know, one year the Democrats come in, next year the Republicans come in, then the Democrats again. But it's the same old stuff. It's, you know, I think Ron Paul was a breath of fresh air that sort of enabled people to think, that, yeah, this is the way it used to be, and maybe we should be heading back in that direction. But, you know, the vested interests now are such that uh, uh, Ron Paul was marginalized, uh, and it's very difficult uh, to turn the ship of state around and put it back into the right direction. We're going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back with James Turk from Gold Money. As it's probably clear to most of you, if we're really talking about banking and economics, you have to look at central banking because it's through central banking in which everything ticks, everything moves. It is like the molecular structure of banking and economics. And very much like it's the molecular structure of banking and economics, which runs and operates everything connected to the economy, so is it true that the cell contains the action of hydration in the body. 
We're at a time when water is so important. We have billions of people on Earth. We have water shortages all over the Earth. And most of us are walking around chronically dehydrated. There's good reason for this. It has to do with the fact that our water has been adulterated. It's been changed at a molecular level, running through copper pipes. Also, so many chemicals have been put in the water that the molecular structure is different. And this directly affects our ability to hydrate. Sometimes it doesn't matter how much water you drink. You can drink 10 glasses, 12 glasses of water, and we're still dehydrated. It is because most of the water we're drinking has been changed at a molecular level and can't get through the cell membrane, or what's called the aquaporin channel. This should matter to you very much like central banking should matter to you if you want to really have a state change in the economic paradigm and economic world. Well, chemistry cannot manipulate, this is important new knowledge, the bonding angle between hydrogen and oxygen in the H2O molecule. It takes physics to do this. And when this is successfully accomplished, the water will recreate itself into a different particle with a different geometry. So basically, the hydrogen bonding angle of water makes a huge difference in terms of whether or not we can get hydrated. And you can't do this through regular chemistry. Well, theoretical physicist Dan Nelson, the founder of the Positron Group and the owner of Wayback Water, is bringing us Wayback Water, a homeopathic dose of water that we add one tablespoonful of this water to a gallon of water. And it totally hydrates the body. It enters the aquaporin channel and does something that most extracellular water cannot do. The thing is, we have to do something with the water to get it small enough at a particle level to enter our cells. And the cells are where the action is for hydration. Remember, as we're listening to James Turk talk about gold money in the economic system and banking and what's really happening, it's all in the context of a centralized banking system or decentralized system. Very similarly, that is true when we're talking about the cell hydration capability. I want you to go to waybackwater.com. I want you to check into Dan Nelson's work and call Nancy Ainsley at 870-741-5877. Get yourself some Wayback Water. Learn about hydration. Learn about how important the cell is and that we're electrical beings and that the water also must be very high energy water to hydrate us. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the show, and we are here with James Turk, the founder of Gold Money and the author of a new book, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, that he wrote with John Rubino. James, I want you to talk to the audience, even though you've written about it, about the Havenstein moment and why the Havenstein moment is so important, this example, this decision point that we're all at now, and why you say it's coming. Yeah. Um, haven't, uh, Rudolf Havenstein was the head of the Reichsbank, uh, which was a central bank in Germany in the 1920s. Uh, and he was the guy who presided over the, the, the German hyperinflation. You know, we've all seen these pictures of people moving wheelbarrows around of, of paper money, uh, where the currency was ultimately destroyed and the middle class of, of, of Germany was ultimately destroyed because savings were destroyed. Um, what happens is, and what hap let's say what happened in Germany, and we've seen this in other places and other countries as well, because the Havenstein moment has repeated many, many times, because many currencies have been destroyed over the last hundred years. They've been destroyed by government and central bank um, actions. What, what the Havenstein moment is, is he decided that it was necessary to keep printing money in order to keep what he thought the economy going and to keep the government from going bust. But what he didn't understand is that money is a function of supply and demand. And they're two, just like any other good or service has a function of supply and demand, money does too. We tend to ignore the demand for money uh, and talk about only supply. And this is what 
the central banks talk about when they say M1, M2, or M3, you know, the total quantity of dollars outstanding or the total quantity of euros outstanding. But the demand for the currency is just as important as the supply, and in many respects, it's even more important. What a Habenstein moment is, is that regardless what the central bank is doing, whether they're printing too much or, uh, or not, a Habenstein moment occurs when the demand for the currency starts falling. And my view is, is that I think we've already seen the Havenstein moment for the dollar in the sense that the super rich get it. Uh, if you look at uh, what's going on in the collectibles market, if you look at antique cars, if you look at real estate in places considered to be safe havens, like you know here in London or perhaps Singapore, prices are going through the roof. The super rich are dumping their dollars and their euros and yen, because this is a problem that's affecting all the currencies of the world. And they're going into things. They're moving out of financial assets and they're going into things. They're moving out of paper money. They're moving out of currencies and going into things because they recognize it's better to own a work of art than it is to have a million dollars sitting in a bank account because the dollar is on this, you know, it's, it's on this path to destruction. So what's happened here is that the Havenstein moment, I think, has already occurred. The demand for the dollar is falling, uh, but it's not yet hit the middle class. Uh, the hyperinflation and the currency collapse occurs when everybody gets it, not just the super rich. And I think that when everybody gets it, it's going to happen in the not too distant future, because all of this money printing, not by the, not just by the Fed, but by you know all of the central banks around the world, is no different than what Havenstein was doing. The the, the currency appears differently. It appears in, as units of account in a bank account rather than paper currency circulating in commerce. Uh, so it appears differently, but it's basically the same thing. And instead of calling it money printing, today central bankers call it quantitative easing. That's a very long, elaborate thing for such a fraudulent body of work, isn't it? Sounds so clinical. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, they're very creative in coming up with things that make it sound good uh, and causes people to be misled instead of looking at really what the process is involving. Um, you know, they think, oh, okay, these guys know what they're doing. But the reality is what they're doing is they're serving their own interests. We saw, again, I keep going back to the bailout in 2008. They're serving their own interests. You know, they bailed themselves out. Instead of what should happen in a capitalist society, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, the great Austrian economist, came up with the term creative destruction. You know, you make decisions, and if the decisions are a good decision, you prosper. If you make the wrong decision, you ultimately should go bankrupt. What happened in 2008 is we saw that Ford Motor had made the right decisions and they didn't need to bail out. But instead of General Motors, which made the bad decisions, um, failing, um, it was bailed out by the government. And, you know, so again, it's an example of how the capitalist assist system is being destroyed. Uh, the focus is on status quo rather than growth and development and new wealth creation. You say on page 63 of your book, the face value of all derivatives outstanding in 2013 was about $693 trillion, mm -hmm. or near 10 times the, si the size of the entire global economy. You then say the total number of derivatives um, is still growing, so it's soaring. And so to give a sense of the magnitude of this, you say that Deutsche Bank, for example, has 20 times the size of the German economy of derivatives. Mm -hmm. So if this is a function, it's a destructive mechanism that we know is responsible for the entire instability of the banking system in the economy, what does this mean if a bank like Deutsche Bank and other banks are this heavily loaded in derivatives? Yeah, it's a source of um, instability and fragility in the financial system by the big banks, which, as I've said, are really no longer banks. They've really become hedge funds. They're playing not only with their capital, but they're playing with other people's money as well, which is, you know, all of the money that people have on deposit in this banking system. Uh, and that's really what the problem was. We saw in 2008, when Lehman Brothers went under, how important counterparty risks were. You know, some of the banks that relied on layman's promises instead of making the right decision and not getting involved with them accepted layman's promise. When layman went under, they were owed billions and billions of dollars that layman didn't have. Uh, and as a consequence, this had a knock-on effect. Uh, but again, they papered, papered it over. They haven't addressed the problem. 
And what's worse, not only have they not addressed the problem, they've increased the level of debt so that even though interest rates are now near zero and economic activity is no greater than it was back in 2007, they've increased the level of debt, so the burden is even greater. So the next time we have the uh, another Lehman uh, event, which again is, is inevitable in the way the system is structured, it's going to be even worse than it was in 2008. James, you don't believe that the debt, the fake debt, is ever going to be paid, do you? No. Uh, what will happen is, is that the currency will be destroyed instead, uh, just like it was in Weimar, Germany, just like it was in, in Argentina a few years ago, and it's presently you know, occurring again in Argentina, like it was in uh, Zimbabwe, like it was in dozens and dozens of countries where the government had made too many promises, more than it could f fulfill. And see, I guess this is an important thing that maybe, you know, should explain in a little bit greater detail. You know, when the government has control of the monetary process and there's no discipline imposed on government, which is what we're losing by no longer tying, you know, the money creation process to the, to the quantity of gold that's, uh, that, that's being um, uh, produced and accumulated, is that a government will tend to keep spending and spending and borrowing and borrowing. And eventually it reaches a stage where it's spending more money, causing it to borrow more than the market is willing to lend to it, or more than the market can lend to it, because the borrowing is greater than the total amount of savings. And what the government at that stage does, instead of cutting back its spending, it turns to the central bank and says, buy my debt and turn it into currency. And you know, this was what happened in, in America uh, during and after the War of Independence. Um, the first currency of the country was the continental. Uh, the government continued to print the continental uh, until eventually it was totally destroyed. Uh, and one of the reasons why the framers created a more perfect union is they recognized the problems that occurred by uh, having a government without any restrictions on its ability to create money. So in the, uh, in the Constitution itself, and then confirmed by the Coinage Act of 1792, which was signed into law by George Washington, gold and silver were a key part of the monetary system, and it was until 1971. So the system that we see today is no different than the system that existed in the early 1780s, um, and the system that caused the framers of the Constitution to ultimately, uh, you know, form the Constitution and change the nature of, of of the federal government from the Continental Congress uh, to the re republic, you know, which uh, uh, they created. And yet it's even more complex. You write about that on page 145. You say, a complex system like a weather front, a living organism, or pre-avalanche snow-covered mountainside contains numerous parts that do change in response to their communication and interaction. This process can create feedback loops begetting emergent properties that differ radically from the system's constituent parts or its previous state. So, and then you give an example, think of a tropical depression becoming a Cat 5 hurricane overnight and you have a sense of the power and potential instability of a complex system. There is something interesting to me about the fact that there is this perception, it's an energetic perception that nothing will happen to our dollar here. Is it national yeah. pride? Is it denial? Is it complete ignorance? What is it? It's probably those and you know other things that we can't even imagine, but I think it's driven by this blind faith in government that's developed over the past several decades. You know, I've seen it, I'm in my uh, mid-60s, and I've seen it develop over my lifetime. Uh, that you know, people just have this mythical, um, misguided, in my view, blind faith that government's always going to do the right thing, but they don't. Um, you know, government is run by human beings. Uh, human beings are by nature um, limited and, and, and make mistakes. I mean, no one, no one is perfect. Uh, and I think you know this point about um, the complex society. It, it's really just the interaction of millions and millions of people in economic activity. You know, going about our daily lives as we seek to, you know, improve our situation in life and make certain that you know our futures are okay and that our children will be okay. But it also makes the point um, that central planning is a failed activity, and we know that from the Soviet Union. Uh, we saw what a disaster 
the Soviet Union was, central planning just doesn't work. It's impossible to expect that a few guys sitting around a Politburo table can make decisions for you know, individuals choosing to um, uh, make decisions for their, how they want to live their lives. And the Federal Reserve sitting around its table is no different from the Soviet Politburo. You know, it's ridiculous to think that central planners in government uh, can know better for you and me and each individual than we ourselves know. Um, so by controlling money and controlling the economy, they are in effect controlling each and every one of us. I want to talk. I, I should say, Kim, trying to, because at the end of the day, human nature will, will win out and we'll do what we want to do, regardless of what the government says you, you, you need to do. And that's what free markets are all about, or what governments will call black markets. But it's basically individuals voluntarily cooperating with one another. You know, no force involved, as is, is always the case when governments are involved. It's just individuals voluntarily cooperating with one another to improve their situation in life, you know, as they go into the marketplace to fulfill their needs and wants. You know, I, I relate to you in a particular way. When you say you're retired, the thing is, I don't feel you're retired. You're about as retired as the ocean. <laughs> you are yeah. not retired. There's no way someone with that mind and that spirit is retired. So I have a question for you about Germany and, and the gold that Germany never got back. We talked about this before in our earlier conversation. And here's the thing. If gold is so peripheralized to the American people, why do our banks hoard it and not give it back to the German people? Yeah, that's really a good question. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, sort of, it should make everyone think, um, you know, why has the U.S. In, uh, you know, encouraged other countries to sell their gold, but why has the U.S. supposedly never sold any of its gold, you know, since the last attempt to control the coal price back in the 1960s? Um, and it, I guess there's a bigger question um, that we have to ask ourselves here, Kim. Um, is the gold really there? Uh, if the gold was really there, why don't they deliver the gold that supposedly they're holding for Germany uh, instead of keeping it? You know, they might be keeping it because they think possession is nine-tenths of the law and they don't want to give this gold away, even if it's German gold, in case they need it to reconstruct the U.S. monetary system when the money bubble blows up. Uh, but you know, one would think that if the gold was there, they should return it to Germany anyway. So there's the possibility that the gold isn't there. I mean, it's just another indication of how things have changed. You know, the but last have century. they really? Have they really changed, or, or are we just in the exponentiated expression of what started uh, when the Federal Reserve came in? Aren't we in the full-blown yeah. expression of it? I mean, criminality is criminality. Seizure is seizure. They seized the country. They they actually created a fake form of money. They had they confiscated gold. They took over the system. They centralized banking. And then on the back end of the banks, they have this financial fraud, financial terrorism going on. And one of the things I thought was interesting also in your book is you, you acknowledge nobody goes to jail. So we know this thing is rogue. It's rogue. The writing's on the wall. We're in a rogue system. So in a rogue system, anything goes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And you're absolutely right. It, it, you know, I was going to say that it's changed compared to what what existed under the classical gold standard that was in place up until the beginning of the First World War. You know, under the classical gold standard, there was a rule of law that neither government nor politicians nor individuals were any different. You know, there was a level playing field that everybody was judged by the same um, same rules, the same laws. That's gone. There's no longer a level playing field. The playing field has been tilted by the government in its favor to the disadvantage of the individuals. And, you know, that's, that's hurtful to the individuals. It's hurtful to them, who, to, to individuals who want to live their life, you know, as free individuals. Um, but, you know, what we saw in the 20th century was a century of fascism. And, I, you know, I go back to the gold confiscation issue again. You know, Lenin confiscated gold, Mussolini confiscated gold, Hitler confiscated gold, Roosevelt confiscated gold. Now, it may seem strange to throw those four people, to, those four politicians together uh, together in group in one, but they all had the same incentive. They all had the same objective. They all wanted to increase the power of the state and take the power away from the individual. And the way to do that is you confiscate the gold because gold is really what controls government. It's not vote. 
It's a sound money system that can really control government. This is the point of the Howard Buffett pre uh, speech back in 1947. We're going to go to a quick commercial, and we'll be right back with James Turk, the founder of Gold Money and the author of the book, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. Stand by. I can present anything. I don't care what it is. I can contextualize what you've got. I can introduce what you've got. I can open the space for what you have. I can create receptivity in an audience. And I can introduce whatever it is that's important to you. Whoever you are, a great steward in your industry, doing something very important that has to get done. If you need the space opened up, if you need people to get what you're doing very quickly, if you need a context created in which to introduce something, if you need any kind of introductory work and offerings, I'd like to make myself available to those of you who are great stewards. You either have a great company, a great product, a great service offering, an important piece of new knowledge that you need introduced, whether it's being introduced on a website to an audience of 10,000 people, to an audience of 100,000 people, whether it's on television, whether it's on radio, it doesn't matter. I'm opening up the space and letting you all know that if you would like me to introduce you or your body of work, feel free to call me at 626-398-8652. I'm Kim Greenhouse, and I can introduce what you've got. Thank you very much. Welcome back to It's Rainmaking Time. We're here with James Turk. And James, I want to talk to you about your involvement with cryptocurrency why you're in it, why you are now an advocate of cryptocurrency. I'm in shock when I heard you talk to Max Kaiser about this transition mentally and, and energetically into this platform. We did a piece on Bitcoin with four uh, Bitcoin stars, and we want to hear why is James Turk turned? <laughs> yeah, well... It's not that I don't like gold anymore or anything like that. I just look at cryptocurrencies as a technological innovation. You know, I like to distinguish between money and currency. Um, you know, I view them as something different. You know, money is a mental tool that we use for economic calculation. Currency is what we actually use when we go into the marketplace to buy goods and services. And if you look at the history of currency, it evolves. It becomes more efficient. And that's a good thing, because if you can eliminate the, the impediments or the costs of transacting with one another, um, that creates more opportunities for commerce. And that's a good thing, because the more opportunities for commerce we have, the more opportunities for people to work and, and raise everyone's standards of living. So over time, currencies have evolved. You know, they evolved from just weights of metal to coins, to coins with milled edges, so you can see whether a currency is clipped or not. Uh, another technological innovation was paper currency, which circulated more easily and efficiently than large weights of, of, of metal. Uh, then you had checking accounts, then you had wire transfers. Uh, then in the 1950s, uh, the, you had uh, plastic cards, which enabled the uh, currency to circulate through pieces of plastic. Uh, then you had uh, you know, what we've done in, in gold money, digital gold currency, and now you've got cryptocurrencies. So I think cryptocurrencies are an important technological innovation, and I, it's, it'll be interesting to see you know, what impact they have. But the fact that some governments are starting to outlaw it, it's a recognition by these governments that um, cryptocurrencies are a threat to their power because it creates a, monitor, uh, creates a currency system uh, outside of the control of governments. And instead of being monitored by regulators, which I think is a failed thing anyway, because government Definitely. regulators... You know, government regulate. You know, we've had, you know, things like Refco, uh, MF Global, you know, Lehman Brothers. All these things are ex heavily regulated, but they fail anyway. And um, and people come back and say, well, we need more regulation. The reality is, you need market regulation, and that's what Bitcoin offer offers. It's regulated by the people who participate in it. It's free market regulation, and that's the best form of regulation at all. Um, and if you know, Bitcoin. Um, is ultimately supplanted by another cryptocurrency, again, let the market regulate it by using it or choosing not to use it. Uh, that's what, you know, I think is good regulation. So, you know, cryptocurrencies, I think, are here to stay. Uh, I think they are complementary to uh, precious metals. 
just like paper back in the early days was complementary to precious metals in that it was easier, easier to move a large amount of metal around by giving paper instead of actually moving the metal. Similarly with cryptocurrencies. But, um, you know, so I'm still obviously a gold advocate and believe gold is money. But cryptocurrencies are an opportunity for precious metals to circulate more efficiently, particularly in the way commerce works today. You know, the online environment is so important to commerce. And none of the national currencies circulate efficiently because there's always payment risk associated with it and there's a lot of expense associated with it. You know, an online merchant who uses a Visa or a MasterCard could end up paying, you know, 3 to 5% of revenue uh, to a, uh, a card provider, whereas cryptocurrencies are essentially, you know, next to nothing in terms of cost. So I, if you're an online merchant, I think you should be looking at cryptocurrencies. I really do. I think they are an important technological development with a, with a, uh, a good future. And I think that's why so many venture capitalists from uh, the Silicon Valley uh, and other places around the world are putting so much money into cryptocurrencies because they recognize that the existing monetary system comes with a lot of baggage, a lot of costs, uh, and it's not working well. So cryptocurrencies, I think, ultimately are an important um, development that everybody should be paying attention to. Okay, so I want to respond to that very elaborate translation for cryptocurrencies. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Your friend and somebody I really love watching, Max Kaiser, calls cryptocurrencies the precious code. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at the cryptocurrency as money, even though it's currency, then some people may say in their mind, listen, there's nothing backing this thing. It's not... You know, it's not backed by anything. It's not a tangible asset like gold and silver if you're digitizing that and doing business with gold money. And yet, if you're looking at it as a decentralized platform, then a decentralized platform is a financial, a kind of a new economic financial space of unregulation. The market dictates what happens and buyer beware and people do what they do. But there's a different accountability system. It's kind of like being off the grid. To me, it's like being off the grid. Buyer, in other words, it's a final demand settlement, what's going on in cryptocurrency. I buy something from you. We have instructions how it's going to be delivered. And then there's got to be some protocol if it's not what you say it is, etc. Reggie Middleton is working on the contractual side for cryptocurrencies out of New York from the Boom Bust blog. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of the detailed work he's doing with the cryptocurrencies. He's working on it with Bitcoin. But I think he's adding value to that system that can also be replicated and I know that you have a cryptocurrency or gold money has developed a cryptocurrency, which I'd like to hear about for a moment. If you feel you can talk about it right now, uh, we'd like to know a little bit about the cryptocurrency and when it might be available to us. Is it 2014, you think, or 2015? Yeah, it's, it's already launched. The company is called Netagio, N-E-T-A-G-I-O, uh, .com. And uh, it, it's already launched. It's, it's right now just taking some very early steps uh, it, it has plans to begin uh, expanding in a number of important ways, and you'll see those developments over the course of the year. But I want to respond to one thing that you were saying. Sure. Um, that cryptocurrencies are, are, you know, people think that they're not backed by anything. Uh, but what is the dollar backed by? The dollar is backed by, you know, promises of politicians and, and central planners, whereas the cryptocurrencies are backed by a mathematical algorithm that cannot be broken by, you know, known technology. Uh, personally, I'd rather you know, rely on mathematics and the promises of politicians. I like that answer. I like that answer. I think that some people, when, when people have become advocates of metals, it's very hard psychologically to say, and we're going to be adding this. This is another participant in this, in this economic system. So I guess there's a lot of distrust, A, in the marketplace and with consumers. People are very distrustful. And so when it comes to anything crypto, some say, oh, it's the mark of the beast. This is really a, this is really a you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a devil posing as a sheep or a lamb, and it's not really what we think it is. But I'm very interested in it, and I'm very interested in cryptocurrencies as a decentralized economic platform in which we can use whatever currencies we want, whether it's a euro or a pound sterling or, or the U.S. Federal Reserve note. I don't even like to call it a dollar because it's not. 
It's a U.S. Yes. Federal Reserve note. Let's call it what it is. It's stamped yes. that way for a reason. Russia, India, and China are the big leaders in gold accumulation. You agree with me? Uh, yeah, at the moment, that's true. What do you see coming? China's going to remain a big factor for some time to come. Um, I mean, they just have you know so many people, and they're creating so much wealth. Uh, you know, there's a basic principle that go gold goes to where the wealth's created. And these flows of gold that we're seeing from west to east are going to have profound implications. Uh, you know, China is probably in a position, um, even on its own, but even better position if it chooses uh, to uh, combine with Russia, to create an entirely new monetary system on their own and, you know, completely leave the dollar. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a geopolitical specialist. I really don't know how this is all going to play out or what the repercussions of the Ukraine thing are. But I do know that, um, uh, you know, gold is going to have a role to play for the foreseeable future. It's been that way for 5,000 years, and, you know, it's going to happen, continue, I think, for the foreseeable future. And that's why the Chinese are accumulating so much gold. Uh, they know that the dollar's, you know, its uh, demise is not too far off. Uh, so they've been spending the dollars that they're accumulating uh, and buying real things. Uh, they're buying resources in Africa. They're buying, you know, the shares of companies. And they're buying uh, precious metals. I want you uh, before we talk about gold being undervalued and the fact of the fact that gold has been uh, kind of played down over the years. I want to ask you about the consumer price index. Just if you could speak a couple of minutes about that for the audience, most people will not believe what you're about to tell them. Yeah, um, you know the numbers are massaged to make the consumer price index look better than it really is. Uh, there's a chap by the name of John Williams who runs um, a company called shadowstats.com, and he calculates inflation the same way the government did back in the late 1970s. And by his measures, if the government had made adjustments to, the, to their calculations, the true inflation rate today would be around 9%. I think everybody senses that you know, the cost of living is going up. So when you see you know, a 1.5% number reported by the government, you know, everybody, I think, dismisses that basically anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's a bigger issue here. And, you know, uh, you know, as we wrap up, I think we should focus on this, that uh, there's a distrust in institutions that's, incur that, that's occurring. And I think that has potentially scary implications for the future. Um, you know, we, work, we live and work in a society where people trust one another, where there's confidence uh, in other people's promises. Um, and uh, that's, I think, being called into question by what's happening today at, uh, at so many different levels. So we focus on this in the book. You know, we explain how um, uh, in order to make uh, inflation look better, not only is the government massaging numbers, but when you buy a box of cereal today, there's less cereal but the same price. Um, and we use a number of you know, examples of you know, where this has occurred. And this breakdown in trust is, I think, um, uh, potentially very, very harmful. Uh, and it you know, doesn't bode well for the future, which is, to me, somewhat worrying. I ask friends of mine, if I gave you $500,000 right now or $700,000 in 10 years, what would you take? And what do you think their answer is? I'm not sure. $700,000 in 10 years. And I said, you have made a fatal error. You do not understand inflation, and you don't understand purchasing power and what just happened to the money. Take it now. Yeah. Take the yeah. 500000 right now. And spend it. <laughs> and spend yeah. it. And, Use know, it. In, invest it. Yes. Uh, you know, buy tangible assets with it. Not necessarily just gold or silver, but buy farmland, buy a house, uh, you know, buy anything that has real wealth, because real wealth is going to continue to hold its value. As long as you buy something that's economic and useful, it will continue to hold its value. Why is gold undervalued? Give the essence well, of this. To I know it's not an easy thing to explain, but Gata showed us that gold is undervalued. Why and how do we know that for sure? Yeah, the uh, GATA.org, the Gata group, you know, they've done a lot of work explaining how governments intervene in the market to keep the gold price low, because by keeping the gold price low it makes the dollar look like it's a, a decent currency, when in fact we know that it's not a decent currency. Uh, so this government intervention has kept gold undervalued. My own sense, and the mathematical formulas that I show in the book, or that John and I use in the book, you know, are based on historical research and historical numbers. We show the long-term trends as, as to how reliable these numbers should be. 
And today, a fair value for gold is about $12,000 an ounce, which sounds a little bit you know, uh, outrageous, but it's no different than it was back in 1971 when gold was $35 an ounce because of government intervention, keeping it at that low level. And you know, eight, 10 years later, it was $850 an ounce. I think we have a similar move you know, coming, and it's probably going to be quicker because in the 70s, the dollar did not collapse. This time around, I think there's a good possibility that there'll be a wholesale flight out of the dollar. You know, the Havenstein moment has already been passed, and you're going to end up with um, a, a collapse of the currency. It's frightening, uh, and what we as individuals have to do is to recognize it as a real possibility and to prepare for it. And one of the best ways to do that is to own things rather than promises, own assets of value, real assets, intangible assets, rather than financial assets. I just want to close with this uh, one conversation about Spain. You have a home in Spain, and goldmoney.com is near Spain, correct, in Jersey? Uh, no, gold money's in the uh, uh, Channel Islands. It's part of the United Kingdom. Isn't it in Jersey? Yeah, the island of Jersey. Okay. Uh, it, it's old Jersey. Old uh, Jersey. Not, yeah, not New Jersey, old, old Jersey. Yes, yeah, the oldest the, Jersey. Yeah, yeah exactly. I want you to say something about your feeling about what happened with Spain, that the largest pension fund uh, was looted, and the Social Security Reserve Funds bought out government bonds there. What does that mean? What's the implications for the country of Spain? Yeah. Well, Spain is turning into a basket case. Um, it, it, it's, you know, instead of doing what it needs to do to operate independently as a sovereign state, it's it, the mas its masters in um, uh, Brussels are telling Spain what to do, which is really unfortunate. Um, you know, it's got 20, uh, 26%, 27% unemployment rate. It's got 52% youth unemployment rate. Um, it, it's it, the economy is, is just doing, you know, horribly. Um, and what they did is they still doing the same, you know, policy that they don't recognize as no longer viable, uh, spend and borrow. Uh, and promises, uh, politicians make promises they cannot possibly fulfill. So they ran out of borrowing capacity. What they did is they looted the pension, the state pension funds. So that state uh, employees are now at risk. Instead of having diversified portfolios, they own Spanish bonds, which you know I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but th it's not unique to Spain. The same thing happened in Argentina, Ireland, uh, Poland just recently. Uh, it basically shows that assets, financial assets, are at risk, and uh, people have to uh, diversify their portfolios in a way that they minimize their exposure to promises, minimize their exposure to financial assets. And this is my last question of the hour, and this is really important. There's so many millions of people that are very afraid that there's a call for a one-world centralized system that's run by the EU or run by the powers in the EU. Do you see that happening where there's like this basket of currencies that's used, special drawing rights, or whatever is decided upon to use, that it will, that a one-world currency will be imposed and or legislated into being on a global level? Are you concerned about it? Yeah, I am. Uh, I think it's a real threat because we've seen where governments control the monetary process. You know, human liberty does not flourish. Uh, you want to have sound money. You don't want to have money controlled by bureaucrats and central planners. And the fact that they've imposed so many of these systems around the world and that the powers of central banks are increasing rather than decreasing, it is a worry. It is a worry to me. Thank you for that honest answer. Uh, it's, a, it's a worry to me, too, and you are in Europe. And have you had any difficulty uh, for gold money in Europe? Um, well, yeah, regulatory burdens are you know, becoming more and more burdensome. But you know, we follow the law where we operate in the island of Jersey and in the British Channel Islands. And uh, uh, yeah, we, we will do what uh, we need to do in order to continue following the law. But uh, you know, our, uh, the financial services industry uh, is becoming you know, more and more uh, under the control of, of governments. And I think you know, that's probably the wrong way to go. Do you have a vision for what's next for the world in terms of uh, Natagio? And what does Natagio mean? Uh, it's a combination of net for the internet and agio, which is a, a term for the um, uh, foreign exchange trading. Ooh, <laughs> very nice. Do you have a vision for Natagio and gold money? 
parallel systems but interconnecting? Yeah, well, yeah, I think they are complementary to one another, as I was explaining before, with cryptocurrencies and with precious metals. You know, cryptocurrencies are a new way to deliver, uh, 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 make a payment. Uh, but, you know, gold will always be money. Uh, at least it will be money for the foreseeable future. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to the founder of Gold Money, James Turk. He's also the author of the book, The Coming Collapse of the Dollar, with John Rubino. And the new book, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, is out. Please pick up a copy and read it from cover to cover. James, thank you so much for joining us from London. And for those of you who would like to sign up with Gold Money, we have an affiliate code on its rainmaking time. Please give us your business and Gold Money your business and go to our affiliate code on its rainmaking time and sign up. We do get credit for that. And I really want to support your work, James. I've learned a lot from you. And I really appreciate you and the stewardship and the humility that you have in a very complex and almost obtuse um, environment in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. It's been great speaking with you. It's rainmaking time. It's rainmaking time. Look out. It's rainmaking time. <laughs> Thanks, James. Thanks, Kim.